Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. This is episode 27, York's Revenge. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Mary, Brian, and Jesse for signing up already. All right, so where were we? It was 296, Carousius was dead at the hands of Electus, and Constantius decided to attack, and Electus started really regretting killing the military genius that started this new empire. Ledgers and spreadsheets weren't exactly going to fix this one. They needed a tactical genius, and Electus wasn't that. So Electus's empire collapsed, and then the Franks that Electus allied with attacked London. Why? Because it was there, I guess. And then Constantius sailed up the Thames and kicked some Frankish ass, thus giving the Bretons a taste of what would eventually become a centuries-long preoccupation, fighting the French. And like any good Britons, upon beating the Franks, they threw a party. Constantius then bragged that Britannia was returned to the internal light thanks to his actions, and then set about rebuilding the northern fortresses. And I think that should about catch us up. Northern fortresses, I can hear you asking? Where did all that come from? Well, the first guess would be to blame the British Empire. As I've mentioned, Electus was not a military man, and he was also in a tenuous position. I mean, the world's only superpower was bearing down upon him. So he stripped the island of all of his troops to prepare his defenses. And so for the first time since Albinus and his rebellion, the frontier was left undefended. So as you might imagine, things were getting pretty wild and wooly on the frontier, which, by the way, Tim, is an example of how Wales is superior to York. But while that seems like it was a bit of a nutty decision for Electus to make, what else could he do? If he didn't push the Romans back, losing the north wouldn't matter to him at all because he'd be out of power. So this was probably a bit like triage. Lose the north to try and save the rest of Britannia. And much like 197, 296 was a year where we can find signs of fires and demolitions, which seems like it was also a sign of just absolute chaos. So maybe the tribes came swarming down south and wrought destruction on the way. But if that's the case, where are the Carousian coins and whatnot in the north? If the tribes came down south and kicked butt... Well, they would have looted the area, so it's surprising that we don't find spoils of war in the north. I mean, there should be coin hordes or something. Additionally, there's a Carousian milestone north of the wall. And while it's possible that the coins and whatnot were melted down so that we have no traces of them left, that milestone is a little harder to account for. So when we look at that, it makes you kind of wonder whether or not this was all due to barbarian raids. I mean, maybe the reason that Electus cleared the north of troops to defend against the Romans was that the tribes weren't really seen as a threat. Maybe they were even allies. After all, Caledonia was not on the best of terms with the Romans, and the British Empire had already allied with other enemies of the Romans. So if that's the case, then maybe the signs of demolition and fire were due to reconstruction or maybe accidents. 
And if there was any sort of invasion, it would have been opportunistic looting, either shortly before the fighting or afterwards once they realized that the territory would soon be Roman again. But overall, the troubles along the frontier weren't really significant. If they were, Constantius would have stuck around, but instead he had the fortresses rebuilt and then set off to Gaul. And he didn't go alone. He brought men from Britannia with him to help rebuild Burgundy, which was badly damaged decades prior by Postumus and his Gallic Empire. If Britannia was a mess, or had been badly damaged, Constantius would have stayed, or at the very least he would have left some men behind to go and take care of the repairs and whatnot. But the fact that he brought those skilled builders with him indicates that there was a surplus of skilled men in Britannia, which indicates that there wasn't a lot of destruction, which suggests that the rebuilding of the fortresses was just a campaign of rebuilding infrastructure rather than responding to a massive invasion. So once again, Britannia was a bit like this. And Constantius was just too much of a professional to kick up his feet and relax. So he went where the trouble was, the continent, where things weren't so placid. And the panegyric actually speaks largely of the same stuff, emphasizing how Britannia was compliant and pacified. And there was no mention of any great defeat of a northern invasion. And given that a panegyric is largely a propaganda piece, and that the Romans really like to hear about military victories, if there was any sort of organized invasion, it would have had pages upon pages within the panegyric dedicated to it. So now we can be pretty certain that there wasn't any sort of large-scale invasion in the north, and Britannia was once again boring and stable following the fall of the British Empire. And actually, things continued that way for about a decade. Now there is something important to note here. The rest of the Roman world saw massive reformations while Britannia was striking it out on their own with Carousius and Electus. We're talking about years upon years of gradual changes, all of which Britannia missed. So once Britannia was brought into the fold, it had some catching up to do. But Constantius was smart enough to know that he couldn't introduce all of Diocletian's reforms at once. If he did, there would be a lot of resistance to it. You have to ease people into large-scale changes. So he put a governor in charge of slowly bringing the changes in. That decision, by the way, is yet another way that Constantius ensured that Britannia remained boring. Oh sure, there's plenty of exciting stuff going on in Rome and on the continent, but on our island? <laughs> It was, it was a little boring. And then after about a decade of this, Constantius started to get an itch for laurels. That whole tetrarchy thing wasn't as perfectly stable as Diocletian hoped it would be. But of course, Constantine's Panagyrus would claim that his father, Constantius, was guided by the gods to Britannia to defeat the unconquered north. But whatever, it was all politics. Constantius had trouble with his position in the Tetrarchy, and he needed to solidify his position, as well as give a boost to his son. And, you know, the best way for him to do that, because they were Roman, was to be popular. And the best way to be popular is to be a tough guy. I mean, hell, that's still the way it is today. Nothing ever really changes. Needless to say, rumors of this, of Constantius' desire to be the toughest guy in the room were probably running rampant, and consequently the peaceful province we've come to love 
is about to get a little more rowdy. So Diocletian, remember him? He was the guy who set up the Tetrarchy. He retired because he was sick, which meant that Maximian, the other Augustus, who was the Augustus of the West, remember him? Well, he also had to retire because that's the way the Tetrarchy was set up. And that meant that Constantius and Galerius were now Augusti. But his son, Constantine, wasn't appointed Caesar. There's a ton of drama here, by the way, but none of it is in Britannia. It's all really good stuff, and if you want to know more, the History of Rome podcast probably has you covered. And if that's not enough for you, there are myriad documentaries and books out there on this whole issue between Constantine and Galerius and all the mess that followed. But for us, it's enough to know that Galerius outmaneuvered Constantius, and as a result, Constantine was not tapped as Caesar. And actually, Constantine was all but a prisoner of Galerius. So that situation showed how effective Galerius was at consolidating power. But thankfully, people in ancient times made foolish decisions after a night of drinking, just like they do today. I mean, I've made some pretty stupid decisions after having a few. I think most of us have. But none were as stupid as what Galerius did after he got well-oiled one particular night. Galerius allowed Constantine to campaign in Britannia with his father. And that right there dramatically changed the course of history for the entire world. I know, I know, that's a bold statement. But look at it this way. We've got Christmas coming up in a few weeks, right? If it wasn't for Galerius getting drunk and saying, Yeah, have at it, man. Go have some fun. Go have a good time with your son. He's a good kid. I feel really close to you, man. You're just, you're a good guy. If it wasn't for that, there would probably be no Emperor Constantine. And it was Constantine who converted the empire to Christianity. I mean, of course, it's entirely possible that another emperor might have done it himself. After all, the Christian purges under Diocletian failed to fix the economy. Imagine that piety didn't fix the fundamentals of a flawed economic system. Who could have guessed? Well, after that failed attempt at piety, the Romans were starting to suspect that maybe this Christian god was stronger than they originally thought. That apparently was an easier concept to grasp than facing facts and accepting that their system was flawed and needed to be repaired. You know that whole God helps those who help themselves thing? Just switch gods. That's the Roman way of doing it. So thanks to that, Christianity was already gaining ground, so Constantine's conversion was politically savvy, and another emperor might have done something similar. But a forced conversion of the empire was nowhere near guaranteed, and Constantine did exactly that. So anyways, when you're opening up presents on December 25th, make sure you lift a glass of spiked eggnog to your good old pal Galerius and his lack of alcohol tolerance. And maybe cut your drunk uncle a break. Who knows, maybe after that eighth glass of port, he'll accidentally change the religious landscape of the entire world for millennia to come. But anyway, we're way ahead of ourselves. For now, Constantius is Augustus, and his son is, well, just his son. And they're on their way to Britannia. And Galerius is sleeping off a hangover. So why is it so important that Constantine came with Constantius? Well, a campaign is no easy task, and it's possible that Constantius wasn't very healthy, so maybe he needed the help. And he knew he couldn't ask his own Caesar, Severus, since that would only cement the man's position and further edge Constantine from any chance of succeeding his father. 
Or maybe Constantius was healthy as an ox and didn't need any help whatsoever, but he knew that Constantine needed a victory under his name, not to mention that he needed to get out from the, under the thumb of Galerius if he was ever going to have any career whatsoever. And he couldn't just give the command to Constantine, since Severus would probably just take it from him. Constantius had to go on the campaign himself if Constantine were to take part in the glory. So my guess is that regardless of Constantius's needs, he knew he had to conduct the campaign himself and bring his son with him if there was any hope whatsoever of the boy becoming an Augustus someday. And what was going on in Britannia during all of this? Well, around this time, or maybe a hundred years earlier, since there are some who argue that this happened under Severus and all we know for sure is that it happened before Constantine's conversion. Isn't history fun? Anyway, potentially around this time in history, there was a pagan living in Verulamium. Yes, people moved back there and rebuilt it after Boudicca and her army laid it to waste. So there's this pagan living there, and his name is Alban. And he has the misfortune of living at the same time as the edicts from Diocletian forbade Christianity or maybe at the same time that Severus was running around and punching Christians. The reason it was unfortunate for him is that he was generally a good guy, and so as he was a good guy, and he saw that there was a Christian priest on the run from the Romans, he gave that priest shelter. And during this stay, actually, Albin was converted and baptized. And then the Romans came looking for the priest. Albin, again being a really good guy, and actually particularly pious, exchanged his clothing with the priest and claimed he was the priest that the Romans were looking for. His ruse didn't last too long, though, since the magistrate soon realized that he was only pretending to be the priest. The magistrate was not pleased with this, not at all, and he ordered that Alban receive the same punishment as was due the priest. So he was decapitated, reportedly at the very site where St. Alban's Cathedral now stands. Now, St. Alban wasn't the only martyr during this period. There was also St. Aaron and St. Julius, also known as St. Julian of Caroleon. The point is, Christianity was already taking hold on the island. So maybe things weren't all boring and placid on the island. But by and large, things were a lot less crazy than on the continent. And then Constantius came to visit. Unfortunately, we don't know a tremendous amount about this campaign. We're not even clear on where Constantius's troops came from, whether they came from the legions left on Britannia, or whether he brought troops from the continent with him. I imagine there would be at least some troops on the island to enforce order following Carousius's rebellion, but did they take part in Constantius's campaign? Who knows? And once again, this is thanks to the panegyrist who decided to talk about how amazing Constantius is rather than giving an accurate account of what actually happened. For example, he takes time to talk about how well Constantius managed to cross the marshes in the north. That might seem like a random tangent, but actually it was included specifically to point out how Constantius did a much better job in his campaign than Severus did who had significant troubles and lost many men in the swamps. So as for what we know about the campaign, we actually know relatively little for sure. Here's what we do know. He arrived on the island and led a campaign to the north, and he probably used both land and sea-based forces to defeat the Picts. 
Some of you might be saying, who the hell are they? We've spent hours upon hours talking about the Maite and the Caledonians. Who are these Picts? Others of you are probably having heart palpitations with excitement because the Picts are a bit of a mystery and people love the Picts. You only have to do a cursory internet search to find that people are fascinated with the Picts and want to find this culture that seems to have vanished. They're almost like a British Atlantis. So the Picts. What on earth are these Romans talking about? Picked. Picti. It meant the painted people or the tattooed people. That sounds remarkably like the Greek name for the original Britons, doesn't it? Pretenni. That also meant the painted or tattooed people. So maybe the name Pict was a nickname or a slur used by soldiers along the frontier for tribes beyond the wall. We're fairly certain that those tribes would paint or tattoo their bodies after all. And it wouldn't be the first time that a nation was known due to a nickname or slur. The Saxons were named after their blade, the Sax. Franks translates to the Wreckers. The name Galatians, as we've spoken about in prior podcasts, is basically a racial slur on how pale they were. Even Vikings got their names based upon their tendency to strike up rivers and creeks, or vicks. So maybe the Picts weren't a nation, but instead they were just a group of tribes that were lumped together by a cultural slur. Unfortunately, we don't have a tremendous amount of information on the Picts that Constantius faced off with, but I think it's safe to say that they might have been one of the last outposts of a once vast and mighty Celtic culture that dominated the island and most of the continent. I'll get more into it when I double back and dive into what's happening in Scotland during all this Roman business, and I'll do that before I move on to the Dark Ages. But for where we are right now, this is the first time the Romans are referring to the nutty tribes to the north as collectively Pictish. So Constantius and his son went north, probably by both land and sea, and fought the Picts. The battles were probably rather similar to prior conflicts with the Caledonians under prior emperors, since technology hadn't dramatically changed and the terrain was still the same. So since we don't know much about what happened, let's just imagine that his campaign, Constantius's campaign, was like Severus's campaign. It was a family outing, but hopefully with less murder attempts. The terrain was unfriendly, the natives were even more so, and in the end, he was victorious and returned to Eboricum, modern-day York. All in all, it was just like Severus. And remember what happened when Severus returned to York after obtaining victory in the north? Well, it happened again. Constantius died in 305. Which is another reason why Wales is better than York, Tim. York is a death trap. All right, that'll do it for today. Next time, we're going to pick up with Constantine and what he did after his father died and what happened in Britannia. We're getting pretty close now to the end of the Roman occupation of Britannia. And then we're going to, like I mentioned earlier, double back and talk a little bit about what was happening in Scotland. Since I relatively didn't touch too much on Scotland other than here's how it, they affected the Romans. By and large, this podcast so far has essentially been England and Wales, so I want to make sure that we cover what's happening in Scotland. So we're going to have some episodes following the evacuation of the Romans 
that will double back and we're going to talk about what was happening in Scotland and just cover a lot of the fun stuff that was happening so you get a firmer idea of what was going on there and why culturally uh, the tribes to the north of the wall were very different from the Britons even before the Anglo-Saxons showed up. Anyway, as always, if you have any questions, comments, and concerns, feel free to email me. My email address is thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach me on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash britishhistory. And you can also go to our website, thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And don't forget, there's going to be some new photos up there of the emperors, like Caracalla and his crazy eyes. So go ahead and head over there and check those out. All right, until next time.